0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. Like Elliot said, my name is Ethan. I am the family pastor here, and we are starting off the series. The series is called The Divine Conspiracy. We, uh, we actually borrowed the title of this series from author, an author named Dallas Willard. He uh, also taught at USC, and he wrote a book called, surprise, The Divine Conspiracy. So the book it explains Jesus' teaching in a portion of the Bible called known as the Sermon on the Mount. So that's the section of Scripture we're going to be going through over the next several weeks throughout the summer, and we're kicking that off today. Now conspiracies, conspiracies are interesting things. Uh, they're just they're kind of fascinating and compelling things. Whether they're fiction or whether they're real-life conspiracy stories, they, draw, they definitely draw us in. So you might be someone who is immune to the drama and to the intrigue of a good conspiracy story, but I want to be upfront, I want to let you know I am not. Definitely, I'm a sucker for a good conspiracy story. Uh, one of my favorite real-life conspiracy stories of all time is the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Have you guys heard of this? This was in 1919. Uh, what happened is that members of the Chicago White Sox, they conspired with members of the New York mob, so that's a great recipe right there. You have professional baseball players and the mob. They get together and they decide that uh, the White sox they're going to throw a couple games they're going to lose a few games of the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds. So the idea is they get together, the players they coordinate with the mob, and they place bets against themselves, knowing that they're going to lose the games they're going to have a big payout at the end. So things are going well, things are going along pretty good, and then things start to kind of unravel. Suspicious betting activity is detected, and then on top of that, some of the players start getting a little chatty, which is not good if you're in a conspiracy. (laughs) So eventually, the whole thing was blown up, and it led to eight baseball players, these eight up on the screen, being banned from baseball for life. Most famously and most infamously, Shoeless Joe Jackson. I love this story. Uh, But any conspiracy, whether it's the Black Sox scandal or otherwise, it has certain characteristics to it. Uh, For one, it involves a deliberate plan to to achieve a desired outcome. But it's more than just a plan. A conspiracy is more than just a plan. Otherwise, we would just call it a plan. But it's more than that. Uh, To earn the distinction of conspiracy, a plan, it needs to be incognito. It needs to be kind of under the radar. It needs to be below the surface. Uh, But in this series, what we're talking about, we're talking about a divine conspiracy. And what makes a divine conspiracy different from all other conspiracies is really its origins. A divine conspiracy has its origins in God. Now, the Black Sox scandal, other conspiracies, they're hatched from all kinds of different places. But the divine conspiracy, it has its origins from the mind of God himself. And because of the mind of God, it's not fully known to us. It's not fully known to us. And so, God's plans, there's always going to be this mysterious quality to them. But then, also, unlike any other typical conspiracy that we normally associate those with sinister plans, right? A conspiracy kind of has sinister plans to it. God's conspiracy, on the other hand, this is a plan for good. It's a plan for the good of all people. Another quality of a conspiracy is that it involves close coordination between those who are in the know. If you're on the inside, you need to be closely coordinated. And for God, well, he's obviously capable of carrying out his plans solo. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need our assistance. But nonetheless, he's invited us to join the inner circle of his conspiracy. He's invited us to be on the inside and not kept us on the outside. He's invited us to be co-conspirators with him for the good of all people. So what is this conspiracy? What is God's conspiracy that he's inviting us to join? It's this. The divine conspiracy is God's plan to make the kingdom of heaven accessible to all people. That's what we're talking about when we say divine conspiracy. And this has actually been God's plan from the beginning. This isn't something new or recently hatched up. This has been his plan all along. And there's clues about that throughout the entire Bible. You go through the Bible and you see these clues along the way. But it really isn't until Jesus enters the picture. And he begins talking about this thing, this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, just starts describing it. Well, now we're starting to get a bigger picture. We're starting to get more detail into what God's plans actually look like and how we become involved in those plans. In uh, Matthew 4.17, we have Jesus' first words of his public teaching. Earlier in the book of Matthew, he kind of has some words where he's in dialogue, where he's talking to people. But these are Jesus' first words of his public teaching. And here's what he leads with. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So right out of the gate, this is Jesus' theme, the kingdom of heaven. And this is going to continue to be one of the most dominant themes of his teaching throughout his entire life ministry. He keeps going back to it. Read through the book of Matthew sometime and you'll just see kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. This is a a drum that Jesus just keeps beating throughout his entire time on earth. But it's here in Matthew 4 that he first announces it for the very first time. And I want to read you what he did next. So this is verse 17. Let's go to verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into, a la- into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. So, Jesus, in verse 17, he's just unveiled this whole kingdom of heaven is near thing. And then what's his first step to start unleashing this kingdom? Well, he does what any one of us would do. He goes down to the beach and recruits some local fishermen. Obviously, right? Man, if I was starting a movement, and this is going to be a global movement, I think my first thought would be, you know what I need first? I need some fishermen. You never know when it's going to be handy to have someone who can catch a fish. What? But that's what Jesus does. This is his playbook. And there have been notable exceptions throughout history, but for the most part, the kingdom of heaven, it's advanced for 2,000 years without fanfare, through normal people like me and like you starting right here with Peter and his brother Andrew. And so now this invitation this invitation is for us to join him in advancing the kingdom of heaven. And this is not through not something that's done through major power plays, it's not through massive marketing campaigns. He's inviting us to join him subtly through close coordination with him. So in our story here, we've got Peter, we've got Andrew. They've just left their nets, but they still, they don't really know what this kingdom of heaven is. They have some idea, but they don't really know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And then we hit Matthew chapter five. And in Matthew five chapters, or Matthew five through seven, this is the section that we're talking about called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus really begins to unpack what the kingdom of heaven is for the very first time, what it actually looks like. And so as we explore this portrait, this picture that Jesus is painting over the next few weeks one of the things that we're going to see is that the kingdom of heaven it's about God's rule it's about his reign and it's about his authority the kingdom of heaven is about God's rule reign and authority and it's not just some pie in the sky kind of kingdom this isn't a one day in heaven kind of thing Jesus isn't just talking about God's reign one day that we're going to experience in heaven it is that the kingdom of heaven is that but it's also more than that He's talking about God's reign here on earth today. And so this invitation to join the kingdom, this is a very practical and a very applicable, actionable invitation for us. So today we're going to jump in with the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And it's in this section of scripture where Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven. And he starts by answering this very important question. He starts by answering who in the kingdom of heaven is blessed. Another way of looking at this question is, who is it it that's going to be happy? Who is it that's going to lead lead the good life? Who's going to experience the good life? Who in the kingdom is going to experience the blessing of the king? So I want to read for you these 12 verses. I've also, they're in your handout, so you can follow along. We'll put them on the screen, but they're in your handout as well. So let's jump in with verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. So this is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He sat down on the mountainside and began to teach. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I want to ask you, as you hear these words, how do you feel? How do you feel just listening to these words? For me, my first reaction when I hear these is honestly a little bit somber. I think these are somber words. And then, I'd say also on top of that, they're they're maybe slightly encouraging when I first hear them and reflect on them. They're slightly encouraging, but probably, at least in my initial reaction, they're only encouraging in in a very vague sense. I don't exactly know what to do with them. Um, But then as I reflect on them more, I think about them more, it doesn't get better, it actually gets worse. Um, I start getting a little bit agitated. Uh, I, I, I read things like, the meek, so I'm supposed to be meek? What? What's going on with that one? I read things like, I'm supposed to be pure in heart? I've got to be pure in heart to be blessed? And that's kind of discouraging, that one right there. I don't feel pure in heart, so how am I going to be blessed? Is it possible for me to even be blessed by Jesus' standards? And then honestly, the more I think about it, the more confused I get by this list. What's, what actually is going on here? Some of my questions that I bring to the table when I read through this and think about it are, is this, is this a list of things that I'm supposed to become? Is that what this is? Am I supposed to become poor in spirit? Another question is, is this a list, a list of things I'm supposed to seek? Am I supposed to seek out and pursue these things? Am I supposed to seek out persecution, seek out insult? Is that what Jesus is telling me? Or is this just a how-to list? Is it, you know, follow these nine simple steps, and you can earn a one-way ticket into the kingdom of heaven. Is this like a, a lifetime goals list to get to in order to get into the kingdom of heaven? What exactly am I looking at when I'm looking at this? Well, so these are my questions, and you may share some of them. Um, but it turns out Jesus, he's not giving us a to-do list here. He's not giving us a checklist. He's not even giving us a bucket list for our life. Instead, what he's doing is he's describing reality. Jesus is describing reality. He's simply describing the reality of what kind of person is blessed in the kingdom of heaven. But the problem is that the reality of who's blessed in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's very much upside down from our normal thinking about what kind of person is blessed, who is blessed. It's very much upside down. The other day, uh, my daughter Margaret was standing on her head because that's what children do. Um, I'm seriously convinced that my kids spend about 10% of their life between the ages of 2 and 6 standing on their head. Um, so Margaret was standing on her head, she looks at me and she says, Dad, why are you standing on the ceiling? Ha 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 so funny. Why are you standing on the ceiling? She said, why are you upside down? Except she didn't say upside down. She pronounced it, why are you waspied down? So I've got this phonetic spelling for you up here on the screen, so you can actually appreciate this. <laughs> we haven't had the heart to correct her spelling on the, or her pronunciation because it's so cute. Dad, why are you standing on your head? Why are you west down? So Margaret playfully thought that I was upside down. She was standing on her head, playfully thought that I was standing on the ceiling. Now, in reality, she was the one who was west down, right? I was clearly right side up. Or rise, pipe up. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how she would say that one. I was right side up. Margaret was upside down. But this is how the kingdom of God appears to us it strikes us as upside down. But it turns out that we're actually like a kid standing on our head, looking up at our father, calling him upside down. God's right side up. And we try to shoehorn God's reality, to match our upside down perspective, we actually end up missing out on the blessing of the kingdom. We, We miss out on the blessings when we call our reality, our picture, right side up and him upside down. But if we can flip over, if we can align our perspective with God's reality, which is really the only reality, okay, well now we can begin to experience that blessing. And so, to that end, there are two kingdom realities that I want to look at. We're going to look at two kingdom realities from this passage. The first one of those is the reality of kingdom entry. The reality of kingdom entry. Now, the the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, it can take up to seven years. It's something that involves a, a time of residency and an application, so it can take up to seven years. Yet, nearly a million people every year become U.S. citizens. They go through whatever they need to go through in order to make that happen. And then there's millions more who are in the pipeline, and why is that? I think the answer is really obvious. Well, the reason that people do that is because they want to experience the blessings of citizenship. There's blessings associated with being a citizen, that's security, influence, opportunity, not just for those who are citizens, but really for their children, for, their, for the next generations. There's all kinds of blessings associated with that. So it's similar with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it's those who are citizens of the kingdom who are going to experience the blessing. So a natural question for us to ask then is, how does one gain citizenship into the kingdom of heaven? Is there a seven-year waiting period? Is there an application? What does that actually look like? How does one become a citizen? Jesus, he answered this question for his disciples in Matthew 19. The context is that Jesus had just had this conversation with a, a rich young man who had asked him, how does one get saved? How does one become saved? How does one enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, after, he, after the man leaves, he's debriefing this conversation with his disciples. Here's what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, my, my two of my daughters, they've been learning to sew a little bit, and so they, they're kind of working on threading that needle, and they can barely get it. They're getting to the point where they can kind of get that through there, and that's a little piece of thread. Jesus is talking about a camel through the eye of the needle. And so if you hear that and you think, well, that's impossible, then you agree with the disciples. Here's their reaction. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? It makes sense, it's a good question. But the disciples, they still had this upside-down view of God's blessing. In their way of thinking, in their way of seeing things, the rich were actually the most blessed. This was clear to them because the fact that they were rich, the fact that they had wealth, clearly meant that they had done something right to earn God's blessing. So they associated rich with doing something right, with being blessed, having God's blessing. And so in their way of thinking, if a rich person couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven, well who could? If a rich person can't do that, there's no hope then for the rest of us. Jesus responded with this. He said, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So Jesus' answer here, it shows us that kingdom entry, it's not about something that you can earn. This is something that only God can accomplish for you on your behalf. And that's why Jesus can say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not the rich, it's not the talented, it's not the good, it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. Now, a point of clarity is necessary here. We need to clarify that to be poor in spirit, it's not a good thing. This is a decidedly bad thing. Not a good thing at all. But it's a state that we all find ourselves in, this poor in spirit state. It means to be spiritually, to be morally bankrupt. It's something that results from our sin. It results from our rebellion against God. So to be poor in spirit, this is really to be meritless before God, to bring nothing to the table before God that could save you from your sins. So then why would Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Why would he say that? Are they blessed because they become aware of their spiritual bankruptcy, and out of that awareness they turn to God? Well, yes and no. If you're poor, it's certainly better to be aware of your poverty than unaware, right? It's better to know the reality of your poverty, but awareness of poverty definitely doesn't make you rich. So if I'm under a mountain of debt, I've got all this debt that I can never repay, and you come up to me and you make me aware of the fact, you draw my attention to the fact that I'm poor, that I'm under all this debt, I might say thank you, maybe, I don't know. But I wouldn't call myself blessed, definitely not. However, if you came up, you drew my attention to the debt that I have, and then you added on, you know what, also, I just want you to know, I've made the arrangements, I've taken all the steps to pay all your debt. I'm going to wipe it out completely. And then on top of that, I'm going to provide an income for you, you and your family, you're going to be totally taken care of. Okay, well, now I'd say I'm blessed. (laughs) That's a blessed conversation. (laughs) This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came to transform spiritual poverty into spiritual riches for regular people like you and like me. Now, how does he do this? Well, perhaps the most surprising part of this whole divine conspiracy thing that we're talking about is that the chief conspirator, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, he planned from the very beginning to sacrifice himself to purchase the kingdom entry of you and me, people like us. Because of our sin, each one of us we owed a debt that we could not pay, and the consequence of that sin is eternal separation from God, from God the Father. Jesus, what he did is he paid that debt for us by dying on the cross, by suffering in our place. When he did that, he took on the debt of our sin on himself, he paid it, and then he gave us in turn his riches, he gave us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. And that, in, in doing that, he repaired our relationship with God. And so, why are the poor in spirit blessed? Well, it's because what's impossible with man is possible with God. So if you've not entered the kingdom of heaven, this is where the blessings start. All this blessing that Jesus is talking about, this is the starting line for experiencing that blessing by receiving Christ's offer of forgiveness and by choosing to follow him as the king of your life. If you've done that, And this reality, this new reality, this sets the stage for every other blessing that we can experience. But those blessings, they're linked to the second reality. That second reality is the reality of kingdom values. Kingdom values. As we've said, the kingdom of God, it's not just a one day in heaven kind of thing that we're going to experience. It's a here and now kingdom. And so experiencing the blessings of that kingdom, it involves living out the values of the kingdom here and now, today. But again, we need to remember, these these are right-side-up values that we're talking about that appear to us very upside down. So it means that living them out involves reordering our priorities. So what we're going to do is we're going to scratch the surface real quick of kingdom values by looking at three kingdom priorities. The first of those is God is greater than everything. In the kingdom, God is more valuable than everything else. That's the starting point. We see this in the statement of Jesus where he says, "'Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.'" So what does it mean to have, what does this mean here? What does it mean to be pure in heart? To be pure in heart, it means to have an undivided heart. That's what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about. And so for me, as a husband, in my marriage, to have a pure heart toward my wife means that my heart is fully my wife's, right? So if you're a woman, and you are not named Andrea Johnstone, I'm not going to be rude to you, but I'm also not going to share the deepest part of my heart with you. For married people to have a pure heart, it means reserving all of their intimacy with the opposite sex for their spouse. This is the forsaking all others part of the the marriage vows, right? Forsaking all others, it all goes to the spouse. And what's interesting about this is that when, when, when a man and a wife, when, 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 they, when they have this pure heart toward each other, there's just tremendous blessing. It's hard to emphasize how much blessing comes with this purity of heart, this devotion toward each other. For the marriage, for the family, really for generations, there's all kinds of, of, of blessings associated with this purity. And so it's similar with the kingdom of heaven. There's a link between a heart that is undivided, that is fully devoted to God, and the blessing of God. I love there's a story that Jesus uses to illustrate this that I really love. He, Jesus uses a lot of stories to illustrate his points. I think of all of them, this is the shortest one in the Bible. It's just a one-verse story. He said this in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Short little story. This is a two-sentence story, really, of a cost-benefit analysis. So this man, he stumbles upon a treasure, and what he does is he realizes pretty much off the bat, this has a lot of value associated with it, he does the math in his head, and he realizes that he's going to be far wealthier if he obtains that field with the treasure in it than if he retains everything else that he owns. And so what he doesn't do is he doesn't sulk off all sad because he's going to part with everything that he owns. No, it says, in his joy, he goes, and he parts with everything because it's clearly worth it. Anyone would look at this situation and say, oh yeah, that was a great decision. That was clearly worth it. Now, in the same way, the pure in heart are fully devoted to God above all else, and they're fully devoted to God above all else, not under compulsion, not because they have to be, but because they rightly assess him to be more valuable than anything else. And the result is that they actually grow in their relationship with God. They see more of God. Blessed are the the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, maybe you've not entered the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe you've entered it, but you've allowed something to creep up and compete with God for that spot on the throne of your heart. Either way, I encourage you to take this story seriously and take up the challenge of this story and actually do the math. Count the cost. Ask, what is it that Jesus wants me to change? I don't know what that might be. Maybe it might be a financial priority or a relationship. Maybe it's an addiction that you hate, but also kind of love at the same time. I don't know what it might be. But I encourage you to run this cost-benefit analysis because I'm confident that an honest assessment will show that the blessing of God that comes with, that comes with devotion to him far outweighs anything that you could put on the other side of that ledger run that cost-benefit analysis. For me, I'm constantly, God's constantly showing me things that, that I need to change, something that I need to change. As I read my Bible, as I interact with you guys, he's constantly bringing things to my attention that I need to change to keep him at the center of my heart. Sometimes I'll resist, I'll hold back from doing that for a while, but I'll tell you, whenever I submit, whenever I actually follow what it is that he's asking me to give up, it's always been worth it, and I believe that it always will be. The next kingdom priority is that the interest of others is greater than my interest. In the kingdom of God, the interests of others are more valuable than my own interests. So let's call out the obvious on this one. Uh, This is not something that comes very naturally to us. This isn't something that we wake up with the interests of others on our mind. We wake up with our own interests on our mind. In my family, one of the things we do is uh, we've got a, a tradition of pizza night, And so we don't do it every week, but pretty often we do pizza night. And one of the things that I've noticed recently is that there's less and less pizza available. Um, I've got these four kids, and they're just growing a little bit. So it's like each time we do pizza night, there's like one less slice of pizza available. And so um, this is a problem for me. Um, As the trend continues, something I've noticed in myself is like this this primal instinct to compete with my children for food. Um... (laughs) So I'll do things like I'll cut their pieces of pizza like really small, like super thin. Like they're idiots and they don't know. They know. They know what's going on. Or I'll just eat really fast. Sorry, guys, you missed out. You talk too much. Uh, If I have a difficult time putting the interest of others above my own, at my own house, with my own kids on pizza night, how much more when I'm interacting with people that I don't know, or maybe people that I don't really easily get along with. And and I think, I kind of hope I'm not alone in this. Um, I'm sure we could go around the room and everybody could tell some ridiculous story of their own selfishness, probably in the context of the people that you love the most. This is something I think we have in common. But throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps saying things that challenge this me-first approach. He says, blessed are the merciful." Blessed are the peacemakers. And then, as I already mentioned, perhaps the most irksome of these to me is he says, blessed are the meek. Uh, I think this is, this is irksome for me because it not only challenges my selfishness, but honestly, it also challenges my ideas of masculinity. It even brings that under fire. In my, in my native way of thinking, a man shouldn't be meek. A man should assert himself. That seems like the opposite of meek to me. He should, he should assert himself, and if that means putting other people in their place, well, so be it. That's just kind of a part of asserting yourself. But again, what I find myself doing here is I'm pulling a Margaret. I'm looking at the world. What's spied down again? I'm looking at the world not through Jesus' lens, but through my own lens. Apparently, even my ideas of masculinity need to be submitted to Jesus and turned right side up. So let's understand this. What's actually going on here? What does it mean to be meek? Well, to be meek, the meek, they put others they put others above themselves. And they respond to situations, to challenges, with humility. And then conversely, we have the non-meek. The non-meek, well, they're just kind of the opposite. They put themselves above others, and they respond to those same situations with pride. So what does this look like in real life, then? Well, let's, let's say that someone insults you and let's say that they do it in front of other people, which makes that even worse, right? So you've been insulted, you've been insulted publicly. What's the non-meek response to that insult? Well, actually, the answer depends on how quick-witted you are. <laughs> if you have a quick wit, then you're gonna respond with the best zinger you can come up with. You're gonna cut that other person down to size, try to humiliate them and redeem your reputation and just kind of put them, put them in their rightful place. Uh, if your wit-, wit isn't quite up to the task, then you're probably going to do what most of us would do. You're going to you know, be sad that you couldn't come up with that zinger in the first place. Think of all the things that you should have said. And then you're going to stew on your hurt, and you're going to prepare that perfect insult for the next time you have that opportunity. And because that opportunity really actually rarely presents itself in real life, you'll probably resort to your backup plan, which is just kind of cutting the other person down behind their back. Go to those same people that saw you be humiliated. You're gonna talk about that person who humiliated you to them. You're gonna systematically chip away at their reputation in defense of your own hurt feelings. So, all of a sudden, my non-meek version of masculinity is looking, at best, petty, and at worst, it's actually looking a little bit cowardly. So, what about the meek person? How are they gonna respond to that same situation? Well, what they're going to do is they're actually going to resist the temptation to grow bitter. They're going to feel that temptation, but they're going to fight against it. They're going to stop rehearsing the offense, playing it over and over in their head, and they're actually just going to move on with life. They're going to get over it, and they're going to get past it. Or, if appropriate, they're going to have the courage to respectfully confront the other person in private, not in order to shame them, but in order just to clear things up. The key difference here is that the non-meek, they try to avoid humility. They hate humility. They want to avoid it at all costs. And they're actually willing to humiliate others if they need to. And so they respond to conflict and challenges with pride. The meek, on the other hand, they're they're comfortable with humility. They can handle it. Maybe they don't love it, but they're, they're okay with that. As tempting as it is to switch around God's values and put themselves at the top of the list, they refrain from doing that. Instead, they look to the interest of others, and they actually do it with a smile. The reason that they do it with a smile is because they believe that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is a family at Seabreeze that I've heard use this phrase with their kids. They say, we are an others-first family, not a me-first family. When I've heard that, I thought, man, what a good picture that is of living out this kingdom value. And as I've seen them live out this kingdom value over the years, I've seen, you know what? I think God's hand of blessing is really on this family. It doesn't mean that things are all peaches and cream for them, by any means, but it's clear that God is blessing them and their desire to, to follow him and submit to him. And I think because we believe God's word, there's reason to expect that that blessing is just getting started. Finally, here's our last kingdom priority. It's that faithfulness is greater than comfort. Faithfulness is more valuable in the kingdom of God than comfort. So these have to do with Jesus' last words in the passage we're looking at today, and these might be the most upside-down, right-side-up words of them all. What they actually do is they challenge one of our most cherished values, and that value is personal comfort. Don't mess with my personal comfort, man. (laughs) You better back off that. Personal comfort, it sits atop the default pyramid of how we actually structure our lives. The default pyramid looks something like this. Bear with me, this is a a rough default pyramid of our life structure. So we gotta get good grades, right? Good grades, you need those because you need the good job. You need the good job, why? Good pay. You need good pay so you can support comfortable life. I think I skipped college, didn't I? Somewhere in there, you gotta go to college. Uh, (laughs) Good grades get you into college job, pay. And the reason that sits atop all of that is to support a comfortable lifestyle, not just for yourself, but also because you want to give that to your kids. You want to give a comfortable lifestyle down to the next generation. And let me tell you, I'm not here to bash these things. That's not what I want to do. These are actually noble things. As you look through the Bible, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about everything that's up here. The problem is that it's borderline heresy to even question whether or not personal comfort really belongs at the apex Of our priorities. That's a problem. And this is nothing new. Uh, A leading philosophy in Jesus' time was called Epicureanism. And what Epicureanism did is it basically boiled down, boiled all of life down to pleasure, good, pain, bad. And Jesus, he pushed hard back against this. He pushed hard back up against the suffering is bad and comfort is good way of thinking in his time. And his words, they're just as poignant for us today. So I'm going to read those for you. He said... Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because grace is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in the right side up kingdom, something is more important than our own personal comfort. Something is more important than avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. And what is that? Well, we can boil it down to faithfulness. Faithfulness, remaining faithful to Christ despite pressure and despite suffering. So does this mean, in response to Jesus' words here, that we go out and we we seek persecution? Well, no, that's definitely not what it means. But as we said at the very beginning, Jesus is calling us to be co-conspirators with him. He's calling us not to be passive observers, not to sit on the sidelines. He's calling us to be out there on the field of play. He's called us to live a life that is seemingly upside down to those around us. And he's invited us to join him in making this accessibility of the kingdom of God through Jesus known to all people. And those are things that naturally are gonna lead to the type of insult and the type of persecution that Jesus is talking about. The only way to really avoid the insult and the persecution is to do two things. First, you have to ignore or just selectively obey the teachings of Christ that'll help you avoid this type of persecution. The other thing is to keep your connection with Jesus under wraps. Only let people know about your connection to Jesus in really safe environments. If you do those things, you can avoid the persecution Jesus is talking about. But when we encounter suffering in the name of Jesus, Jesus says there's actually great reward and great blessing associated with that. Now I want to clarify, there is no blessing for being a jerk and then suffering the consequences being a jerk. Being a jerk is a thing that is all pain and no gain. But when it's obedience to Christ, not our own antics that cause us to suffer consequences, well, we we can actually be happy. We can actually be pleased with that. We can actually, when we experience insult because of our connection with Christ, we can actually smile about that. Because, like it says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. When we're talking about Jesus with someone and that results in persecution, you can actually rejoice and be glad because it says, great is your reward in heaven. So as we wrap up today, I want to review this list of kingdom values, put that back up on the screen. I just want you to look at that. I want you to ask, is there an area of your life where your values need to be turned right side up? Is there an area where you realize, you know what? I think I'm standing on my head here. I think I need to flip upside down and see things God's way and get in line with that. Is there something competing with God for the throne in your life? Or maybe it's the second thing, is there a relationship where you realize, you know what, I actually think I'm taking a me-first approach. I think God wants me to take an other's first approach in this relationship. Or maybe there's a place where you're seeking personal comfort, which is okay, but you realize, you know what, I think I'm seeking my own personal comfort at the expense of faithfulness to Christ. Is there something in one of those categories? My assumption is that for each one of us, there's a yes. Um, But the good news is that as we realize an area where we need to change, we're not alone. God actually wants to bless us. He wants to bless you. He wants you to do these things and he wants to help you along the way. So I invite you to do that. I also invite you to accept the invitation and join this divine divine conspiracy. And I invite you to join us as we continue to look through this passage. I think it's going to be really insightful and really helpful. We've just kind of begun Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's going to be really helpful as we pass on through these throughout the summer. So I invite you to join us back for those. Let's pray. God, we realize that in many ways we are like kids standing in our heads. Um, We don't naturally, we see things the way we want to, um, not necessarily the way that's accurate. And so, God, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be confused about reality. We want the gift of seeing things through your perspective, God, um, because we believe that's the true perspective. We really do. And so, um, Father, I pray that you would help us To do that in practical ways, I pray that um, for those who need to enter the kingdom of God, that you would help them to ask the right questions, ask tough questions, and find out what that actually means. Uh, God, for those of us who have already done that, then Father, I pray that you would draw our attention to specific areas where we can align ourselves with your values, not in vague ways or ways that just cause all kinds of unclear guilt, but in ways that lead to, to action that we can just rejoice in the blessing of following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.